Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by the 2017 URM Summit, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests, including Andrew Wade, Kane Churko, Billy Decker, Fluff, Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. The URM Podcast is also brought to you by Heirloomed Microphones. Heirloomed Microphones are high-end condenser microphones with something that has never been seen in the microphone industry, a triangular membrane. With our patented membranes and our tailored phase linear electronics, your recording and live experience will never be the same. Heirloomed, our microphones will help you discover clarity. Go to ehrlund.se for more info. And now your hosts, Joe Wanasek and A.L. Levy. Hey, welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I'm A.L. Levy. With me is co-host Joel Wanasek. Joe Sturgis is on vacation, living life. I'm about to go do that. I can't wait. Yeah, I, I'll do that sometime. I don't know. It's been about a year and a half I'm due, but I can't bring myself to do it yet, but... I know that you guys won't give me shit when it's my turn. Yeah, go ahead. Take a long time because I'm going for two months. You know, it's really kind of amazing to me how um, in certain societies that's totally cool. Like uh, mm-hmm. Swedish society is totally cool to go on vacation for six weeks. And here it's like, you better be cool with two weeks, loser. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, it's paid too. Yeah, it, that's the most amazing part. By the way, since we're already talking, I'm just going to go ahead and introduce our guest, Zach Oren, known for his amazing work with bands like All Shall Perish, Blood Runs Black, Chelsea Grant Immolation, Brain Dull Suffocation, Fallujah, Decrepit Birth, on and on and on. I've known about him for quite a while, and uh, you guys have requested him, so here we are. All right, let's keep talking about vacation. Fuck recording. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, there it's paid, but we're not going to keep getting paid. Yeah, I mean, it's a trade-off, of course. If you take a bunch of vacation, your whole entire economy loses productivity, but, you know, you have less quality of life. In America, we just work ourselves to death. It's, it is what it is. I married a Russian, so I've adopted a little bit of that mentality in terms of, uh, you know, just taking vacation and trying to get away from work for at least a month every year because you need it. It's just so positive and healthy for creativity, your brain, you're inspired, and you're just much better person to be around. So I, I think it's, it's a good thing to do. I completely agree. When I was recording bands, I made a point of taking vacations all the time, like maybe four or five times a year. During the session? <laughs> uh, actually, I have done that, but I've done that not because... I couldn't take it. I did that because it was planned before the session was planned, and I let the band know about it. It wasn't like a five-week vacation. It was like a weekend trip or something that I wasn't going to cancel over a bunch of losers. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, if I had a cruise booked, for instance, for a year, and then a record came in, it's like, well, what, am I not going to take these four days that are already paid for? Or something. Yeah. Obviously, cancel vacation and just edit drums the whole time. It's a much <laughs> better thing, especially if it's an extreme band. Yeah. What you gotta yeah. do is get a drum editing system that you could just bring with you everywhere and never stop drum editing. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally ruin your vacations. Exactly. So, how much time off do you take? Like, do you work seven days a week? Me? That's yeah. that's a great. <laughs> 
See, I would say that I have off time all the time these days. Like, you know, I'm on and off because I'm doing like half my work out of my home studio these days, I'd say. But that said, I'm never actually on vacation at any point, it feels like. Because, you know, there's always some lingering project I'm working on. There's, I can't remember a time in my life where I wasn't actively working on something. And that is good and bad, for sure. Well, what's the definition of actively working on something? Does that mean like that the project's just not done? Or does it mean that there's stuff happening now, now, now? Go, go, go. Yeah, it means like I have people waiting on things from me and they're just in a queue at all times and I'm never actually done. Or like, like you know, I never actually have a clean slate and I could just be like, oh, I'm leaving. Nobody's expecting like a mix or a master or anything from me. That's never <laughs> like that. Especially like right now, I'm supposed to be editing drums for three different projects. I'm supposed to be finishing mixing. I'm supposed to reamp uh, Reaping Asmodia right now. And I all these things are just, I don't actually have anything scheduled the next week and a half, but those are all scheduled, so to speak. And it's been like that the last few years, more and more, less in studio with band, more work that's just at my own pace stuff. Well, don't ever go on vacation, Zach, because oh, as I soon don't. as you <laughs> announce that you're going to go on vacation, everybody comes out of the woodwork. You'll get bands from like four years ago. They'll be like, dude, uh, can you give me some stems for this or that opportunity that came up? And you're like, dude, if I even have the files, like I, I'm gonna ha- you're going to make me go dig through 20 different hard drives, which of course are unlabeled and poorly organized and thrown in some bin somewhere in some sort of storage and go find your project. Really? Because I have time to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, that's kind of exactly what I'm talking about. So, I mean... How do you keep your sanity? Do you have any sort of... Oh, I don't. Of, uh, I'm crazy. Oh, okay. All right. Well, <laughs> I'm out of my mind. There you go. You'll fit right in here. <laughs> Did you take any days off per week? No. Though, I, that said, yes. I, uh, there's times when I'm just, I'm not going to look at this. I'm not looking at anything today. Is it scheduled or is it just you get to that boil over point? No, it just happens. I've been finding myself more and more making sure like one day a week, I know I'm just going to do terrible work if I'm just doing it. But the other thing I've been doing is I find like waking up in the morning when it comes to like doing some chore like thing, like drum editing, the best thing to do is like right when I'm drinking morning coffee to just get right on that immediately. And you feel like you get a lot done by like noon and all of a sudden you've got work done and you can feel kind of like you have a day off, but you actually worked four hours already or something, you know, that kind Joel of thing. Joel lives that, but he goes at like five in the morning. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's like the story of Joel's life. I agree, though. Anytime that I wake up early and hit it immediately, it makes my day better. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't feel like a loser come around 5 p.m. when I just feel like crawling into a ball and not doing anything ever again. That's actually a good strategy for weekends, too, because I'll give you an example. I mean, Zach, are you got are you married or anything like that? I am. Yes. All right. So on the weekends, you know, you're like, I got a ton of work to do. You're freaking out. And um, if, you know, leaving Friday night, coming in and at Saturday morning all day, I'm thinking about it. So if I come in on Saturday morning and I just knock out a couple hours super early, usually that kind of like sets up the day. So I get back at seven or eight in the morning and I'm finished for the entire day. And I feel like I work. So I'm at ease and I got whatever I'm lingering task finished and then I can actually relax. So it's, it's really weird. Sometimes I set up the weekend by working right away in the morning and then just getting it through and being finished with it. Yeah. I've set a dangerous precedent here. 
where I, the recording desk that I had at the studio from like 2002 to 2013, that I then moved out of that studio down the hall to a different studio. But my ex-partner just let me have that desk. So I've got like, you know, full actual setup at home now, which is, you know, a blessing and a curse because it means that at any moment I can be working. But on the upside, I have a nice setup. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to go with the curse side of that. Um, Just uh, having finished maybe a 15 year stretch of working from home. Mm-hmm. I finished. Can tell you, what did you finished. do? I moved, uh, moved out of the house. Gotcha. Yeah. So now I've got a situation where I've got a place that, um, I don't, it's like a commercial space and, uh, I'm not even in the same city as it. So I come in to do work at specific times there. And then the rest of the time, I'm not even, in the same city. And ever since I kind of started moving in that direction, my life got better. There's something about working from home. It's very, very hard to stay disciplined. And uh, it's also very hard when you live with somebody for them to understand that you have to stay disciplined because, you know, to the normal world, going to work is how you get work done. To normal world, home is not where work is done. So most people assume that if you're home, you can just like run this errand, help with this, do that, do that. All these things that, you know, will break your flow. So I I just see tons of challenges in working from home. Plus, I find it tough to get into that like predator state of mind that I need to get into to crush work when like my bedroom is just you know, down the hall. <laughs> or the band is lingering in the kitchen. Or <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, Oh, I would never allow a band in my home. I mean, pretty much as a rule, that would be a whole different monster that I don't think I'd ever want to deal with. Well, that, yeah, they did live with me. There is that. The band's lodged at my place. Yeah. I, that's a thing that I've thought about in the past. And every time I've done anything close to it, I've felt like it was just, we need that, like, night off from each other on like a long session in my opinion yeah absolutely okay so the band has never stayed with you before uh hmm. more or less yes more or less i once rented an apartment out to a band but that's a long story but <laughs> that did not go well i was about to say it sounds like an interesting story care to yeah, care sure. to share no no i don't <laughs> <laughs> you don't I have think, to say the name of the band <laughs> i think they'd know who they were <laughs> Oh, well. So, it did I mean, not go you didn't well. get a security deposit back. Basically. I probably should have. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one thing I started doing, actually, is I started taking security deposits from bands that were lodging in my place because some bands just fucked it up. I had one band cause $1,000 worth of damage. What did they break? They broke my Xbox 360, they broke a bunk bed. They just they broke a lot of shit. <laughs> How did they break up that? Like, I, I, what were they like constantly perpetually drunk and stumbling and like playing yep. full contact? <laughs> yep. <laughs> like WWE in your yep. bedroom? That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, this was a similar thing where they broke stuff and like just seemingly had no regard for the fact this was actually, you know, someone's home, not like a, a hotel room or something. Yeah, they think that they're in one of those Pantera home movies and this is, uh, <laughs> and, and that the, your home is their backstage. 
And uh, yeah, that's actually an amazing point now that I think about it, because for many years I had a studio in a house and, you know, when the bands would come, it's, it's just amazing how poorly raised some people are. Like they come in, they leave their trash all over the place. They break things. They, you know, drop things they, in places they don't belong. I'm like, well, what if you took that and you moved that? Why didn't you put it back? Like, did I say you should take my, you know, $3,000 custom guitar and just leave it upside down on the fucking floor in the other room, like on the concrete? <laughs> I mean, are you retarded or should I hit you in the head with a hammer 15 times to increase your IQ? I just, I don't know. <laughs> It, it, I, I don't understand. I had a kid. Um, okay. I had a kid one time take a whole clip of airsoft BBs oh, and no. just shoot off like 300 of them. I was sitting there all of a sudden heard, I'm like, what the fuck? And I, I run outside and there's a kid popping his buddy with the airsoft BBs all over the basement. And I come out and I'm just screaming at him. I'm like, every BB, I'm going to charge you $50 for every BB I find. You better pick every single one of them up. And he was just like, oh, uh, I'm like, why did you do that? He's like, oh, I don't know. Oh, my God. I wanted to kill the kid. I almost threw the band right out. God, my life is so much better now. Holy shit. Like, <laughs> it's stories like that that make me realize what a great decision I've made. God. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> that brings me right back. I had a dude steal an SM58 from me once, and I've, I obviously figured it out. I mean, I was just like, where's my mic? Even though I never used that microphone on anything, it was weird because I was just like, my 58's gone. And I just noticed it immediately. And I, I'm like, guys, it is like, oh, I don't know. And I turned out the singer like took it and I called him and threatened to end his career. And then I got my mic back. Did I ever tell you about the U87 that was stolen from me? No, oh, but that's no. pretty ballsy. Oh yeah, it was ballsy. All right. So um, 2012, I got approached by these two producers who were kind of like talking a big game around town in Orlando who wanted to like use my studio for their production company and I figured why not you know can uh, maybe make a few extra dollars and take some days off while still making money right because that's the uh, that's the dream so um, yeah. the we had a really really good system worked out they seemed cool trustworthy and uh, I had to get a back surgery done so I booked them while I was getting that done because I knew that I wouldn't be able to work for a few days. Because I'm a monster, I decided to work anyways, like the next day. But um, that's that's a different story. So, anyways, I go and I get the surgery, and then they have their session, and then the next day I come back, and you know I'm still kind of drugged out, and I just went into my room and went to sleep. Mm -hmm. When I woke up, I had to get ready for my own drum session like I said, because I'm a monster robot. And uh, <laughs> and so I started looking through the mics, and I couldn't find a U87. But, you know, at first when something's missing, it's like you don't automatically think it's missing. You think it's somewhere else, right? Like, yeah. I don't immediately go to someone took it. but Or I thought that maybe it was behind another microphone, even though I could clearly see behind all the microphones. I still had to check. Um, I stole it. Sorry. Yeah, I know. I didn't know you yet, though, so I couldn't blame you. Um, so, yeah, so not there. Looked all over. U87 is not there. Um, I called those guys up, and they told me they put it back. And I was like, well, look, guys, I only have one U87. And um, I only know this because I'm setting up for drums, and I need both of them. So maybe you guys misplaced it. They came over. They overturned everything, went under 
all the cushions and the couches, everything, U87s were missing. And so I decided that I was going to be a dick because where else? I mean, it had to be them, right? Them or their yeah, client. Of course. Of course. Okay. Was. Like, there's no other option. Where Where else would a U87 just go? I don't lose microphones. I don't lose gear. I lose my wallet. Especially one that's $3,000. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that didn't even belong to me. It belonged to Jason Sukoff. Like, I don't lose shit like that. I lose my car keys. I lose my wallet. But I do not lose $3,000 microphones. I lose my sunglasses, too. Like, those three things, sunglasses, keys, wallet, I will lose every single fucking day. Like, no matter what happens, I will always lose those. <laughs> <laughs> like, That's good just, to know, actually. Just ask Joey about when I stayed at his house, how I didn't find my keys for five days once. But uh, <laughs> a- anyways, uh, yeah, so... Uh, U87, I called them back and they can't find it. They don't know what's going on. I said to them, I think your client probably took it. They're like, no, he's cool. He's cool. So I decided I was going to be a dick and I said, all right, well, you guys paid me in full and all his guitars are here. So you tell him this, I'm going to keep the money and I'm going to keep all the data that's on my hard drives. And I'm going to sell off his guitars within five days if I don't get my microphones back. I'm not going to sell them off to be a dick. I'm going to sell them off so I can then go buy another U87 with that money. End of story. And you don't get your money back or your files. So make a choice. So they went and they talked to him. And lo and behold, the microphone showed up to my house one day later. And what had happened was that he brought his mentor over who was like mm, some older mentor. gentleman. Yeah, I told them no guests in the house, no extras, just your client. But he brought his mentor, who's like this older gentleman who started a production company. And apparently he saw the U87 and was just like asking all about it, how much it's worth, like what it's good for. And uh, then he left and they didn't notice that he took it. So, uh, so yeah, they uh, it came back only through me being a dick. I have had a D6 stolen, which never came back, but uh, that's my U87 story. So, moral of the story... That's crazy. Wow. Moral of the story is, though, you know how it's really weird when you're missing something mm-hmm. to uh, ask somebody because they immediately think that you think that they stole it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, totally. Just ask. Because even if they didn't steal it, maybe their friend stole it. Well, I think this is a good topic, actually. This is something we haven't really talked about. But if you're going to have bands at your studio, I feel like this is a good chance to really talk about what are some good guidelines that we can put in place or should have in place or considerations uh, to avoid situations like that. I can avoid your situation with the BB gun better. and (laughs) Because what I found, this is a thing I found just over the last few years, because in 2013... Yeah, I'm being serious because I've noticed a huge change because I went from being in my studio, which is kind of like, well, was, it still exists. It's just my ex-partner runs it entirely now himself. But, you know, we kept it pretty clean, but, you know, it wasn't exceptional. It wasn't the fanciest looking place. And I feel like that made people treat it kind of like what you're saying. They're like, well, it's cool. I can just, you know throw an airsoft BB around and no one will ever care. But (laughs) what I found recently, and I'd heard this, but it's so true. If you keep, or you work in a studio that looks fancy and looks impeccably cleaned up, then everybody is intimidated into not messing anything up. And it's like you, you end up doing less cleanup because people just don't 
want to disrespect it. It's weird. Well, it's not weird, but it makes sense. I think that's true 85% of the time. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely people that still just are like terrible people. Yeah. Um, because my place, <laughs> my place is nice and always kept like spotless. And so, yeah, 85% of the time, the people see that and they treat it like a museum. You treat it like a museum. Exactly. They the museum treat it like thing. a museum. Yeah. And also, I feel like another thing that's important is to set the boundaries up front. So, like, say that they're being super messy and you hate it or disrespectful to your shit, but you're just a pushover and you don't say anything and you let that bottle up and piss you off. And then three weeks into the session, you explode and bitch them out. They're going to think you're a dick and they're not going to respect you and they're not going to know where it's coming from. As opposed to if you handle it day one and just set the precedent with this is not allowed, then uh, that you have a good a basis to work from as far as keeping your place together. That's just what totally. I noticed. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree. I actually have a printout that I would give them. It's laminated. Um, <laughs> that's because, you know, uh, you don't want fluids and beer all over it. So I laminated it. I made two copies. I put it on their beds. And uh, I also emailed it to their management and to every band member up front. It's just the rules. And I was pretty strict about certain things, like the the door to the living room kitchen area closes at 11 p.m. It reopens at like 10 a.m. or 9 a.m. You know, all these kinds of things. And like I said, 85% of the people were cool about it. We violated the crap out of that when we were there. <laughs> You're not a band. <laughs> we were cutting drum samples while AL was sleeping. <laughs> that well, could be yeah. the worst thing, though. If it's like some friend or somebody, like then somehow they start thinking rules don't apply to them and they'll be worse than clients. The rules didn't apply to them. Uh, this yeah. was a drum forge session where... Uh, we also left that studio immaculate, hopefully immaculate, before yeah, we left. That's well, they, I mean, look, we had five days to do a ton of sampling and photos and videos and every single room in my place was being used and I understood the deal that's completely different that's I was in on the chaos that's that's a totally different story that's different than say five losers not throwing away their trash for four weeks and then piling <laughs> up like giant like 13 or 18 gallon bags of trash just one on top of the other on top of the other in the corner of the room developing a fucking bug infestation in my house to where i have to kick. <laughs> that's actually happened too I yeah i know to where i had to kick everybody out for five days because i need to fumigate the fucking place like <laughs> that's different <laughs> It's very, very different. That baffles my mind. Yikes. I mean, it's shocking to me that some people live like that. Here's a story, not band related, but it's kind of funny because I it's directly related. I haven't seen a band do this because I've never had a kitchen for them to use, but I'm sure this has happened to you guys where um, the band comes, or I had a roommate, I should say, not a band. I had a roommate in college and he never did dishes for like three or four months and he would just pile up in the sink and there was two sinks, you know, there was like the water side and the dry side. And uh, we just put a, a sign on it that was just said Mike's Kitchen. And then we put like a, a couple of Tupperware containers on the ground where we stacked his dishes. He just never, ever cleaned up after himself one time for the entire year. It was shocking. For the entire year? Wow. Yeah. He never did dishes once. And he just accumulated and accumulated. And at one point in time, I was just like, dude, why don't you just get paper plates? I mean, because at first it was funny. You what know, and year it was kind of like. This? 
Oh, God, I was maybe like a sophomore in college or something like that. So 1982. Yeah, 82. I was one then. No, um, it was maybe like 2000, 2001. God, man. Yeah, college years. Holy shit. I was a dirty motherfucker, too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the thing is, uh, speaking of things that people can do nowadays, if you have clients and uh, you care about the cleanliness of your place and you hate cleaning like me, Um, Because I fucking need a place to be clean, but I hate cleaning. It's just such a waste Mm -hmm. of time. Like, if you value your time, which in my opinion is more important than money, cleaning is just such a fucking waste. Unless it's like your zen or something. There's a service called (laughs) Handy. handy Handy.com. It's like Uber for cleaning. It's not that expensive for like 100 bucks, 150 bucks. Get your place cleaned. I would suggest you're you're looking it up. Yeah, I just looked I'm it up too. I'm absolutely looking it up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's available in every city, but there's you know they're not the only one. There used to be a company called Homejoy that did this, but they went out handy, put them out. But I think there's another big one or whatever. But so worth it. Once a week, come to the studio, fucking clean the shit out of it, like on a pro level, and uh, not have to worry about that stuff. I mean, obviously, you still need people to put trash in the trash can and uh, flush. It is hard. You know, it's really difficult to do that. You know what, man? I feel like uh, there's probably some psychological barrier I don't understand. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There has to be. So, all right. So what else? Like, how do you keep your clients in line, Zach? Besides, besides. I got to say, that's that's I was telling you how I moved Late 2013, I went from, you know, owning my own place to and now I just do all my sessions out of the studio down the hall, which is Sharkbite Studios, which I love working there. And the burden on me is I need to make sure trash goes in the trash cans and that I put away all the cords and mics and, uh, you know, basically leave the place how it was when I left. But there's also janitorial service there. So I no longer have to think about like the deep clean stuff, which is actually incredibly nice because yeah that's the kind of stuff i was terrible at i was terrible at like it's like man i don't think i vacuumed the studio in like a couple months <laughs> and i have a partner and we're always like kind of assuming the other guy might do something in both ways and probably both driving each other nuts with stuff we're leaving out or something like that and it's easier when i'm in a place which is a studio that many engineers share so there's just set rules and i have to follow the rules like everything's got to be back where it belongs and it's not hard to do and the trade-off is that i'm not doing you know deep clean or worrying about maintenance of the board and stuff like that and i don't know it's kind of i thought it would be potentially hindering me but instead it's been really nice because i'm like not thinking as much about you know making sure my studio stays in working order and that kind of thing is no longer a concern of mine so much here's one that i adopted i have a sign that i put on the door for anybody entering i say if you leave your shoes on past this point i'm gonna tack 50 dollars onto your bill you don't walk on my nice clean floor with your shoes 
<laughs> the only person that's allowed to do it is me. So I have slippers and then people can walk in. And this is something I picked up from Russia because they take the subway and it's so gross when you have a, a city of, you know, 15 million people or whatever Moscow is. You know, you got bums that sleep on the trains and stuff. So they come in and they change their clothes right away and they change the, into slippers in the house. And, you know, they have clean house clothes. So you're not sitting on the, you know, the couch with, you know, the same clothes you sat on the subway with. It. So it's very... I think it's a good habit because people come in and they don't track dirt and snow, especially in the winter because I'm in Wisconsin. So we have all this snow and, you know, that road salt just destroys your laminate floors. And it's such a pain in the ass to clean. It has a very special like way of doing it. Like you have to make vinegar water. You can't just go buy floor cleaner. And it, I just absolutely hate it. So it drives me nuts. But that's a really good one. Like shoes off. You should get some prison jumpsuits. Uh, that are always clean for your band clients to change into for clean studio clothes. <laughs> like, just get a bunch of orange jumpsuits. I think that that Why would not? be great. I mean, it's like a prison anyways here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, the idea of clean studio clothes would probably go a long way with some of these people who have been sleeping in a van for months on their way to the studio. Have you guys run into that problem, by the way, where bands are sleeping in their van outside of your place and don't even mention that to you and then it causes trouble because yes. that's yeah, always absolutely. been fun. Yeah, definitely. Um, you can't hate them for it. Well, yeah, I can. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can hate people for anything. Um, True. <laughs> that's, that's my right. I did have one band once. They came all the way from California, okay, uh, to Florida in a van playing shows and they were on their quote-unquote tour with another band their band, sh that other band showed up with them. So I had a band I was recording for like 14 days and a band that I wasn't recording there for 14 days. So I had to lay down the ground rule that the band I wasn't recording isn't even allowed in my place and their van is not allowed on property. They need to go stay at a Walmart. And um, they did. And this is because I had a band once a few months before that who came by in an RV that looked like the Breaking Bad RV. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, and I say that I say that because I actually think that they were selling meth, but um, because they had like five extra people with them and like three pit bulls and they were just some sketchy motherfuckers. And uh, they parked outside of my house and ended up having like four cops around them and it got very, very tense. And from that point on, I didn't let people just camp outside my house. Good so, call. Yeah. Yeah. I'm leaving out part of the story that I don't want recorded about this because I don't want to find myself in a vat of acid somewhere south of the border. <laughs> <laughs> we'll avoid It would that. be pretty black metal. Yeah. Well, black metal would be burning down a church, not ending up... Uh, you know, melted. I don't want to melt. So, so let, let's talk about recording. Zach, you work on a ton of metal records. That safe is true. To, safe to say that that's your favorite genre to work on, or is it just something you found yourself? It is doing? not safe to say. It is something I found myself doing. Which I mean, it's funny because I am into metal, and I have been, you know, basically since I was a young child. But in reality, honestly, some of my favorite things that I've done were or that I work on are like ska recordings. I've done some orchestral stuff and I love just doing like pop rock and like pop punk stuff, but I'd say it comprises like 10 to 15% of my work and like the other 85% is all usually metal, usually technical death metal stuff because that's 
where my name has made and I don't really advertise in any way. So like, I'm going to just keep getting clients word of mouth from the genre I'm in. But no, I mean, honestly, yeah, it's not, you've worked on technical death metal projects. You realize they're 4,000 times more work. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Fuck yeah, they Especially are. the drums. Yeah. I'm kind of the same way. I keep getting hired by metal bands, but I like metal and I've been a metalhead since I've been mm-hmm. 11 or 12 years old. But it's not like I listen to metal. I listen to like pop music and rock music and things like that. And I, I enjoy doing metal, but I also enjoy doing EDM or pop or whatever is just as much as doing metal, but I keep getting hired by the metal bands. It's crazy. They just keep coming back. And I'm like, uh, a lot of them think of me as a metal dude. I'm like, no, I'm not a metal dude at all. Like, yeah. I'm more of a hard rock dude. I'm not as much into this, like really super intense metal stuff. I mean, I find myself really loving some of the records I've done, but there's plenty of them that I'm just like, well, I'm not into these vocals so much where I can't hear a single word people say. I'm not into like, you know, stuff that's just blast beat start to finish type stuff so much. So yet it is a large part of what I work on. So how did it, how did it happen? I mean, I know that metal is a genre that you can easily get typecast into because yes. the scene there's, there's a lot of genres that are bigger, but I don't know of a genre that has a more connected fan base. And so in a metal, the, you know, like country's huge, but I doubt they have an underground like metal does. So, I feel like with metal, you do something that people like, and then suddenly all the bands are talking because the bands are the fan base also. So That's the best point ever, too, because that's 90% of the people that listen to this kind of music are in a band themselves, I swear. Yeah, so, they're the, <laughs> so, so, they're, so the fans are your clients, and they're spreading the word. Exactly. So what, uh, how did it start, though, for you? Well, I mean, for me, my origin story is pretty strange in that I was right from when I was about 12 years old. So we're talking roughly like 1993. I was getting into computers and music and this thing's called mods. And I don't know if you wait, know wait, what so those are. Experienced, so you remember the shift from uh, oh, yeah. cock rock to uh, rock. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Those are glorious years. Okay, but sorry, go on. Mods? Oh, no, it's okay. So mods are like, they're these little sequencing files like .mod, .it, and .ft files. They're basically like DOS-based. Actually, they were originally Amiga-based, but I was on a DOS PC, you know. You have to make samples, sequence them, and do whatever you can do with that. And it's not exactly like MIDI at all, because it's like all done this strange... The closest thing I could describe to it would be like a piano roll type thing, but it's all very weird. And so I was creating samples and putting together like songs in the genre of like rock and metal, which was pretty rare since everybody else is doing like, you know, techno and electronic stuff. And that ended up bringing me. So some of the stuff I put out was like primacy sounding stuff that I was doing and including like, yeah, including some cover songs. And I was into that as far as my playing goes, like that was like my biggest influence as like 13 year old me was like learning how to play, you know, bass and guitar, learning them from like Primus and Metallica songs, like, like a lot of people of that age at that time. And I got recruited out of nowhere because I was just putting, you know, I was back, this is not on the internet as you know it today. This is on like America Online and like GeoCities chat room type stuff. Yeah, bulletin boards, like literally like call up BBS stuff that I was releasing all these songs. I had like probably 40 or 50 shitty songs 
that child me was making that kept getting better and better as I was like learning to like record for real too, you know, like making my own guitar and snare drum samples and things and got recruited by uh, boss games, which is like a subsidiary of midway games and to do the soundtrack potentially for one of their upcoming games, you know, Twisted Edge snowboarding for Nintendo oh, 64. When you were like 15 or something? Yeah, so I'm like 15 at the time. Yeah, I was 15, almost 16 when this happened. So I was in sophomore year of high school. And, you know, they pitted me up against like 10 other guys and I had a totally different approach to it. What they wanted for the game is they wanted it to be like Primus music, period. That was their goal was to get Primus. But, you know, at the time you couldn't just put real music into a Nintendo 64 game. There's only like roughly like 600 kilobytes that you can use for each, you know, song in a game because those cartridges are so small memory-wise and that kind of thing. So everybody else just approached it like you would approach making electronic music and it sounded not real at all. And I was, on the other hand, just recording real bass and guitar samples and arranging it all into songs. And so I won that job out. Probably never would have if I ever admitted I was 15 and, you know, that used that money that I made from that to start acquiring some recording equipment and start recording bands locally and that kind of thing. So that's kind of my weird origin story. Did you become like the captain of the football team and like get all the girls? Absolutely not. No, no. Nope. <laughs> you can't imagine mu something much nerdier than being like a music nerd that also is like a computer nerd, like quickly getting into digital audio workstation stuff. In 1994. Or three. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, no, yeah. You've, that's about when I started, and then this started becoming a thing. And I did, I only did those two Nintendo 64 games, and then Nintendo 64 is not a thing anymore, and so that career was over quickly because now they just use real music in games, of course. Okay, so that's actually pretty fascinating. Um, Very interesting. Yeah, I totally was not expecting to hear that. Oh, really? <laughs> so, so, yeah, no, seriously, that's, uh, that's one of the more unique... Uh, stories we've heard from a guest so far I have to say so what happened next like were you bummed or were you like yeah whatever cool on to the next thing I was I mean when I I'd say the entire time from when I was like 15 to 19 I was like one of those 24 hours a day playing recording playing three instruments too I just like I was into guitar originally and then I started playing bass in bands and then I started playing drums in bands and like I was in like 10 bands recording all sorts of stuff. It just became like this huge like band and recording horror around everywhere, just doing everything and slowly morphing into that. But yeah, I was definitely bummed, you know, to not get hired again after the first two games. I thought I did a good job on the first game and then I got hired for the next one, but I thought I did a terrible job in retrospect on the second game. They wanted it to be like ZZ Top that time. And that was just... <laughs> And I mean, I ended up just making some horrible generic cock rock that didn't sound... I mean, I listen back to that and I'm just like, I'm not proud of this at all, but I'm super proud of the first recording. I want to hear those songs. You can. They're on You can, <laughs> They're on YouTube for sure. And they're available on the internet. Do you mind if we put them on this for people to hear? If you disclaimer that I made them over 20 years ago. You just gave the best disclaimer ever. You were like... 14 years old. I'm not even going to tell you the name of the second game, but yeah, I'm totally fine with you putting the Twisted Edge. It's called Twisted Edge Snowboarding. There, You can see the music to it. Unfortunately, it doesn't work in any of those N64 emulators. It's like one of those games that's not compatible. 
So only someone with a real N64 can get the music off of it. wanted people to hear it because i think it's bad oh yeah i remember how hard it was to do stuff back then and anybody doing anything in music technology in that era in my opinion is a hero let alone a young teenager i think it was easier because i was a young teenager frankly okay fair enough because i didn't have any old school recording like preconceptions this all was all it was to me i thought that's what making music was because that's all i ever knew other than i used to be into my little rolling four track or whatever that i had that i'd make a million tracks by just you know bouncing four to two over and over and over again but you know past that i wasn't really I didn't have any previous recording going on other than this. Fair enough. Um, that's, uh, that's, we've talked about this before, but I feel like that's also the same type of thing that has created certain drummers like Alex Rudinger, for mm-hmm. instance. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's godly. And I think that there's a, you know, there's a generation of drummers who are like beyond what you could have ever imagined a drummer could do. 10 years ago or 20 years ago and it's because when they were young 
and uh, growing up and in their formative years, they listened to these bands that had totally edited drums <laughs> and, uh, you know, sequenced in kicks and all this, and they didn't know that it was fake. So they just learned to play that way. They had no clue. They had no frame of reference. They didn't know that that shit was assembled in the studio or anything. So and they just assumed they need to become that good. Yep. Yeah, those are the best. And by doing that, they raised the bar. I like that. So uh, so how did it move from this, like, uh, you know, a jack-of-all-trades type situation to being, like, the extreme metal dude? Oh, well, okay, so I'd say... You know, then my later teenage years, when I start professionally recording bands and like, you know, charging and all that stuff, the number one thing I was doing at first was definitely ska and like punk ska stuff, because that was the big third wave ska time at the time. But some of that was like ska metal type stuff, you know, because that was a big thing back then. Not so much anymore, but that slowly morphed into like getting a few like full metal bands. And I was in a metal band at the time, along with some of these other bands and finally recorded a few. And I'd say like one of the first bands that really kind of launched me getting some metal attention was that band Animosity, which I still work with that drummer too, Naveen. And it's just like that band, then some people would hear that. And then I'd say, you know, one of the next groups that I recorded that was well known that was in that metal genre was All Shall Perish. And this is all like in the early 2000s. And once you start doing a couple records, then other people start coming out of the woodwork to come record with you because that's what happens. And then it just blossomed. So uh, speaking of All Shall Perish, we've got a quote here oh, from Eddie good. about you. He said, uh, let me put it to you like this. That dude, Zach Oren, gets us. We've worked with him. And when you have familiarity, it's just really easy to give your best. That's a really nice quote. I don't think you could get a better quote from an artist. So I guess what I'm wondering is how do you personally go about reaching artists that you work with and like what steps do you take to better understand them and facilitate trust? I, I think it's honestly, and everybody will confirm this about me, is that I absolutely, completely to a fault, have no filter with bands and that like I never, ever like uh, sugarcoat anything. I'm entirely too honest to them. And like, I have nothing I wrong with it. telling Eddie. I'm like, Eddie, that was fucking terrible. You could do so much better. And, you know, that kind of thing. Like, you know, it's not, it's not in my DNA to like baby somebody through a situation. And they, you, they, you don't have to be mean when you're doing that too, you know? It's like, you just have to be realistic and helpful. And then what that does is it facilitates trust. Like you just said, then Eddie knows when I tell him something's good, I'm not full of shit. Cause I'm not going to tell him it's good if it's not good. And a lot of people don't believe their engineer because engineers are just trying to get through the day and, uh, you know, be like, okay, yeah, that's good. No problem. Yeah, we got it. I think when you come in with a really brutal comment, it helps to make it with a smile on your face so they know <laughs> that there's a there's a pinch of, uh, you know, not there's no malice yeah. there. <laughs> like, you're not actually... You're like, that was absolute fucking dog shit. Do it again or get the fuck out. <laughs> you know, you do it with a smile, and then they laugh, and then you they do it better because they know you're going to kill them. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's that kind of thing where I'd say it seems like a dangerous thing, and I would say there's like a 2% of clients that... I've just rubbed completely the wrong way by being myself. But like everybody else, for the most part, seems to get that that's who I am. And that's why to come to be not why to avoid me is because I'm going to actually get 
the job done and do it without like just loading them up with their ego and like telling them everything's great when it's not always great, you know, you got to sometimes just work through things and they trust that I'm trying to make it as good as possible. I also find that what really helps is when you tell them that uh, you're doing it because you care, like guys, listen, I'm really hard on you because I want you to be better. I want you to blah, blah, blah. And I'm not, you're not paying me to bullshit you. I'm here to make you a better band and make the best damn version of your vision that we can possibly make. And they, I feel like that really resonates with a lot of clients. Again, like you said, you know, there's always a couple of straggler bands that just don't get it and don't respond well to any sort of pressure. But most people do. Most people want to please you and come in and really show you that they can, you know, they can hang and they're, they're going to be good. So totally with you on that. Yeah. It's the, it's, I think what it also is conducive to is repeat clients that second recording, and I mean, I just look at most like the recordings I've done. Usually the best recordings I've done with bands is their second or third record with me because at that point we're in a thing where I'm almost essentially like an extension of them where I understand them uniquely because it takes sometimes a feeling out process with a band that can take like a first recording you do with them. Which is why it's not a bad idea if you're a band to come record like a two-song demo with an engineer you're thinking of working on like your full-length when with, you know, because then when it comes time to do a full album, you guys already kind of have your feeling out process done and it really helps a lot. And for your sake too, I mean, you know, I think that you've got to, I mean, look, to the listeners, here's a disclaimer. I realize that a lot of you guys are not at the point in your career where you can turn work away. But at some point in time, if you want to get known, you're going to have to be selective or more selective about who you work with and not take bands that are a good fit for you. And so, I mean, obviously, this is this is more slanted towards the band because ultimately they're hiring you. But still, I think it's important for you as a producer to be able to hang out with the band for a song or two and see like can I do a good job with these guys like can I handle being around them do I understand what they're trying to do yeah you have to develop a rapport with them and that doesn't come instantly you kind of have to get up to know them Mm -hmm. and figure out who's the key influencer in the band who actually has the talent who's the idiot in the band that has a big opinion on everything but literally has no idea what they're talking about and then you once you figured out what the different members roles are and how they interact and what the band power dynamic is you can successfully manipulate that to uh, the advantage of the record like hey go play video games and fuck off while we record guitars because you know it flusters the guitar player when the bass player is in the room because they want to kill each other and it's going to be much better for the guitar player and he's going to do a much better job if he doesn't have that stress and that pressure and you know the guys in the band will never say that to each other because it'll be conflict but you as a producer can kind of come in and be the hard ass and the only way you can do that stuff and use the strategies uh, to get a better product and really bring the band to the best they are I should say can possibly be is by being able to read them and really just building that trust and rapport that, hey guys, I need some time to do this with so-and-so in the back. You guys piss off and go smoke a cigarette and play video games. And they say, yeah, dude, cool. Because they trust you. That's so true. What you're saying right now is that also sometimes bands, once they get to know me, like when someone's out of the room, they'll ask me to be the bad guy. And I hate that because they'll be like, hey, can you can you tell, <laughs> I'm making up a fictional name here, Robert, that I should just play all the guitar tracks? And I'm like, uh... I'd rather you tell him that because I totally agree with you. But, you know, like I I start getting that reputation as someone who, you know, can say something like that to a band. It can be a dangerous thing. But, 
know, generally it's not like that. It works out pretty well, but that you're right. It's important to see the strengths and weaknesses of a band the first time around. So that second time around, you know who you're going to need to focus on. Like most of the time I've been uh, looking at the uh, in-studio pictures, the bands post from working with you. And I see a ton of really awesome analog Mm -hmm. gear. Uh, Do you work hybrid or in the box ever? Are you all analog or do you see any value to in the box or how, like what's your normal workflow? I'm very in the box in the, uh, mixing sense for the most part what i try to do and i've been i'd say this is actually even before i was in shark bite which is beautiful place with all sorts of gear but like i really just use a few pieces in there i use the board 100 percent of the time now as my preamps and eqs and we've got some nice neve and chandler and some other preamps and eqs and things but I find, honestly, that first off, that Trident is nice for everything. There's nothing I don't like on it. And the consistency is more valuable than me messing around with other stuff. And the only other pieces I really use are the compressors. I I like using those vintage DBXs for snare and kick and drums. And I like using the 1176s for all sorts of things. And I like using the LA-2As for bass type things you know, like a bass guitar or something of that sort. And past that, I'm doing most of my work in the box. I'm not one of those guys who really finds a big value in using the reel-to-reel. I don't really find much value in using summing mixing and that kind of stuff because for that little bit that you might, of quality, I might extract out of doing something like that, I giving away the versatility to, to change it later is a big big detractor for me because I I like the ability to just open a mix on my computer and be able to tweak something on it. And you can't do that if you're doing like analog summing and keeping it all on the board or something. Yeah. So you're all about workflow. Yeah. Because I mean, I'm a, I'm, people will certainly tell you about me that I just work at this kind of insane speed at times, you know, that's especially earlier in my career, my thing was like cranking out albums in two days and that kind of thing and getting it all done fast. Now I'm you know, the last 10 years or so, I've calmed that down a little and tried to get more focus into just making really good products. But still, I don't want something that's going to just take up a ton of my time and probably my attention that's permanent and unfixable. I like to be able to just get in there. And like you said, workflow is so important to me to be able to just jump around from what I'm doing if I need to. I want to just reiterate that I think it's really important that working fast is very key when you're doing any sort of extreme genre because mm-hmm. the amount of editing, for example, that you have to do on a death metal record versus you know, like a butt rock record is insanely, you know, it's it's 10 to 100x exactly. greater. So what you can do to make up for that and in terms of like budgetary constraints and things like that is really work on developing your speed, getting your key commands down, really developing like a systematic workflow and organization system that's going to allow you to work faster, edit faster and you can kind of make up for you know as we would say like lost time uh, because those records they just require a lot more attention to detail in that area and uh just uh you know for those of you listening if you're new to the podcast or new just to urm or nail the mix or whatever and have never seen one of my creative lives or anything like that just some uh you know pro tips 
go check out a program called Quick Keys if you're in Pro Tools. You're going to have to hunt for it because, unfortunately, the uh, developer died, and so it hasn't been updated in a while. But look up Quick Keys and also a program called Batch Commander by Slate. Programs like Cubase, you can uh, do all kinds of cool macros and mm-hmm. complex key commands with. But uh, for those of you guys in Pro Tools, uh, you're kind of limited. So look up programs like that. Just switch to Cubase and quit fucking around. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, the number one thing you got to do is just stop using slow tools because that's not a great way to make music quickly. <laughs> well, oh, you, you, uh, I just switched to Cubase, but I'm good with Pro Tools. And, uh, hey, you know what? Help me. Let me jump in. Since we're talking about key commands, I'll tell you guys, I switched all my importing and exporting functions to key commands, and I never did that before for some stupid reason. But just simple things like file importing and like loading up tracks and like different variations of importing different things that I use, and that has saved so much damn time. This is something I did like a month or two ago. And uh, wow, holy crap, it's amazing. It's like when you do something like that and you actually sit down and figure out a certain specific key command or build a macro or whatever to do a specific task that you do a lot, it's insane because you sit back and you're like, why the hell didn't I do that before? It's just mind blowing. Yeah. Well, I, I agree, by the way. Uh, I feel like Pro Tools being the industry standard thing is now old uh, old news. Like it was 10 years ago, but now you can be in any DAW. However, if you do use Pro Tools, um, you should get Quick Keys or Batch Commander because it will change your life completely. Uh, but I did switch to Cubase recently just because the... Uh, the workflow is, is better. Uh, one last question I have for you. Um, mm-hmm. Have you worked with a bunch of bands like Immolation, Decrepit Birth, Brain Dill, the Brain Dill? Not, <laughs> brain Dill. Not Brain Dill. I'm working on Brain Dill's <laughs> yeah, mix today, by the way. That's what I'm doing today. <laughs> they got a new record coming oh, out. Awesome. I'm sure that it is brutal. Um, you know, those bands are pretty raw, super aggressive, punishing, brutal can I say brutal any more times? Mm-hmm. Uh, metal, what's your take on the new wave of metal acts that are, you know, a much more polished approach as opposed to that? Well, I mean, I work with that kind of stuff too. And for one, it's a lot easier to work on because a lot of what's happening. Wait, which one is easier to work I'd on? I'd say the more polished, more like, more like, I don't want, I almost said new metal and that's not at all what I meant, but you know what I mean? Like, 2016. N-E-W. Yeah, N-E-W metal. I mean, it's a lot easier to work on because there's a lot more like focus, not quite as much extreme speed, but you know, I don't know. Yeah, I find it very easy to work on compared to like trying to do these crazy, you know, intense death metal projects. And part of that is also like you can't make anybody happy when it comes to the, uh, intense death metal stuff because some people always get mad that it's too polished and then other people will get mad that it's not polished enough and then other people you know the opinions on that are so varied whereas i think you can just make a great i'll call it pop metal record and you don't get those kind of complaints even when it just comes to like mastering or something like i did that last volumes record just the master on it and that I found that mastering that was a million times easier than mastering, you know, one of these like fast, intense, like tech death things, because that there's so much more open space that I can like actually make big bass in it and like, you know, do that kind of stuff with it. And you can't do that so much when it comes to dealing with super intense stuff. You got to think about headroom and all these kind of things and it becomes a big mess. 
if you're not careful. I think moral of the story for people listening is that don't be a purist. No. Just, uh, do what's right for the projects you're working with. Um, I just think it's interesting. You're known for a lot of this aggressive, super, I'm going to say brutal against stuff that's really raw, but uh, you also work on a ton of other stuff and polished stuff as well, and you don't seem to have an issue with it. A lot of the listeners or people in bands tend to be pretty polarized and feel like it's an us versus them or polish versus raw kind of battle, mm-hmm. and it's not, you know, especially as an engineer producer. Um, you just need to do what's right for your clients. I'll say this. I am compared to, I think, most engineers out there these days. I'm very, very anti-fake stuff for the most part, unless it's necessary. Like I use a lot of fake kick drum, I would say, on records. But, you know, 99% of what you hear from me has all the original real drums on it. Like, you know, I don't have this nice drum room just to record guys in and then sample replace every last thing in it that's not my style and i always think it's funny too sometimes people think that we're like using superior drummer or something on recordings and like maybe like 0.5 percent of what i've ever put out has fake drums on it so i it's that that bugs me and using i'm just not into these digital amps just yet i've never found something i thought actually sounded particularly great there's lots that sounds good like you could get an axe effect sounding really good but you can't get it sounding great in my opinion yet compared to just getting the amp mic'd up and doing it really well and like those kind of things that's where i'm purist still i guess other than that i just anything to make it sound good is fine with me i think it just depends on the player and Mm -hmm. and what they're used to um and i've seen like i tend to agree with you but at the same time like for instance i just did a recording with this band Monuments mm-hmm. and um, they're a great band great players um, one of the only bands in that genre that actually can can do it and thing is their guitar player John Brown who's amazing has some of the best tone in his hands out of anybody I've ever met he's a pod guy and uh, he makes tones on his line six that you can't believe are pod tones and we tried using tube amps in this session just because as an experiment and it just didn't feel right for them or sound right and then we used the uh then we went back to sims and it sounded great and i've typically been more of a purist like you in that regard but i've started to i've started to feel like as much as i love the real thing I, I feel like we have a generation of musicians now who grew up with fake amps and so that's what they're good at making sound that's definitely a thing too for sure. Yeah, like, and, but this opposite is also true. Guys that are really, really good at playing on a 5150 and making that sound good, their feel tends to get messed up when they play Sims, like the latency and all the different, just the, the just the differences will throw them off. And, you know, you know that getting a good guitar tone has a lot to do with how it's played. And so the way that the gear responds to the player is a huge part of it. So, you know, if they're not used to using a sim, that might throw them off. But by that same token, if they're not used to a tube amp, that will also throw them off, in my experience. And I'll say I'm not against these digital things one bit. Sometimes they're the best tool you can use. One of my favorite guitar tones I ever did was on this band Saving Grace, which is just this is a hardcore band on uh, Face Down Records. They, I used a uh, Axe Effects as the pedals, essentially, into this. And we thought it sounded way better. And I mean way better than using any of the real pedals we had. Because you can do 
it's kind of that thing you're talking about where like you can get unreal feels that like real pedals can't do. And in this case, I'm talking about like the tube screamer models that are in the axe effects and the gate models. You can just get this incredibly tight tone that you don't necessarily get. It's really mainly just the cab emulation that I find to be inadequate, like the cabin mic. I love the heads and all the versatility though in those things. They're amazing. And you can really play like almost unreal tight on like a pod. Those are, I still remember playing pods and just how fun it would be because you can, it felt like cheating on guitar at times. Kind of was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Zach, thank you so much for uh, coming Yeah, no problem. On. We've got to wrap this up now. I had a great time talking to you and would love to have you on in the future. You're a uh, a great guest and your origin story was totally unexpected and Definitely. So, uh, really cool to hear well good to know so yeah thanks for listening guys and uh we'll talk to you soon the unstoppable recording machine podcast is brought to you by the 2017 urm summit a once in a lifetime chance to spend four days with the next generation of audio professionals and special guests including andrew wade kane Churko, billy decker fluff Brian Hood, and many more. The inspiration, ideas, and friendship you'll get here are the things that you'll look back on as inflection points in your life. Learn more at urmsummit.com. The URM Podcast is also brought to you by Heirloom Microphones. Heirloom Microphones are high-end condenser microphones with something that has never been seen in the microphone industry, a triangular membrane. With our patented membranes and our tailored phase linear electronics, Your recording and live experience will never be the same. Erlund, our microphones will help you discover clarity. Go to ehrlund.se for more info. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit urm.com slash podcast and subscribe today.